We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. Uh, it's great to be back. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing lawmakers clashing this week, both physically and verbally, over a bill that seeks to retrospectively acquit former President Chen Shui-bian of corruption charges for misusing a state affairs fund when he was in office, a local television network being left rather red-faced after inadvertently running news tickers indicating that China was attacking Taiwan during a morning newscast, Planned strike action by the Taiwan Railway Labour Union in protest about not being first asked about the government's corporatisation plans for the Taiwan Railways Administration. The Legislative Speaker beginning a series of visits to sites proposed as possible new locations for the Legislative UN and lawmakers voting to reduce prison time for growing marijuana and mid calls for marijuana to be decriminalised here. But we'll begin with the latest on the coronavirus situation here in Taiwan. And Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Thursday announced that the Central Epidemic Command Centre will be replacing preventive quarantine with rapid testing as a new protocol for those who come into contact with people who test positive for the disease. Now, according to the Health Minister, the move is aimed at ensuring the island's response capabilities remain as unaffected as possible amid the ongoing spike in local infections. The Epidemic Command Centre has said that medical professionals who have received three coronavirus vaccine shots can opt to receive regular rapid or PCR tests instead of entering quarantine after being listed as a contact of a confirmed case, while a list of other jobs for which the same protocol is to be adopted is also being worked on. The health minister is saying that the long-term plan is to replace most preventive quarantine with tests and a time frame for the policy's implementation will be determined by the degree of public acceptance. Of course, the speed at which the policy can become the norm is dependent on an ample supply of test kits. Now, the health ministry says close to 30 million newly purchased rapid test kits will be available early next month. Seven and a half million of them are kits are scheduled to arrive at the end of this month, in fact, while another 21 million are expected to arrive on May the 2nd. Now, the government has said that it plans to introduce a rapid test kit rationing and purchase mechanism through the National Health Insurance System next month also. And the Epidemic Command Centre has warned that the latest statistics indicate that cases here in Taiwan will continue to increase over the coming days with a daily caseload of between 6,180 and 15,583 expected by April 30th. So, Sean, they're changing their testing protocol and quarantine protocols there for people who come into contact with direct cases and they're going to more tests. They're saying more tests is better than quarantine, basically. Uh, I actually, uh, given that the change in strategy in Taiwan, I actually am not against this. There, there's a simple reason. Um, right now, there's quite a lot of fear uh, that, you know, in Taiwan, we have contact tracing. So if you go to 7-Eleven or Family Mart or all these places, you're you're always scanning your QR code. And I've noticed significantly that there's a lot less people trying to do so. The reason is because if you uh, get in contact with somebody who is positive, then you have to do quarantine. And, you know, that's 10 days you have to ask your employer, hey, I can't come to work. I'm going to take 10 days off. And uh, uh, given that there's a huge difference this year from last year, which is a lot more people are quarant- uh, have boosters and, and a lot more people have, you know, vaccinations. So therefore, uh, it, it just becomes like a huge inconvenience and a great fear because, you know, it's it's no longer, okay, I might die from uh, COVID, but that, uh, you, know, it, you know, if I get into contact too many times, I'm not going to, I'm going to lose my job. So I do think that the PCR 
PCR tests might help. Also, the PCR tests have another, the rapid tests have another, uh, uh, I think, a reaction to Omicron because Omicron has a far less uh, incubation time. So, uh, you know, and after about five days, uh, you know, the, 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 a person's infectiousness drops significantly. So, or at least according to latest data. So that suggests that, you know, the, the old, you know, 10, 14 days quarantine plus, you know, self-minding is, is a reaction to an older uh, coronavirus and not the latest. So, Michael, of course, this appears to say the government is getting ready to live with the disease. Yeah, and I'm on the same page with Sean. I think uh, most of us uh, by this point have um, known someone who's had to undergo one of these 10-day or however many-day quarantine things. And I've heard people complaining that, you know, oh, this uh, people are being selfish by not doing the QR code. And, okay, that's one argument, but it's a, a privilege for you to be able to spend 10 days in quarantine. You, you, you have to be privileged is what I mean. You, you've got to have the money to do it. And as Sean pointed out this is people who are, are maybe just hanging on by a thread with their jobs not having economic uh, stability and um, if you don't have the right setup in your house you, you you don't qualify and you've got to go to a hotel which should, so it's it's just not realistic when the CDC is saying that they're predicting that we're going to have 10,000 cases a day by the end of April so these kind of moves are inevitable and also as Sean pointed out we've all uh, gotten our shots at this point and um, although you will still hear some very uh, voracious voices against the idea of living with it, mm, I don't see any other country that has been successful with a zero COVID strategy so far. So, yeah, it's time to move on. But of course, Michael, there's a problem. I would say there's a bit of a problem with the test kits because Taiwan is now having to import millions of test kits. And of course, it's not like they haven't known that they need test kits for the past two years. Yeah, this is a bit unfortunate. Uh, I would say they definitely dropped the ball on that one. And also the price of the kits uh, needs to come way down to make it to the point where a person will just feel comfortable in you know, getting tested every couple of days. Because last time I looked, uh, I think I was looking at 270 NT for a, t- a test uh, at one of these pharmacies near my home. And, you know, that's not the end of the world, but that's, that's still some money, especially if you're asking me to do that every you know, 10 days or from every week or something. So, yes, that needs to be done very quickly. And I wonder why we need to be even importing them. This is, seems to be something that uh, the, the local pharmaceutical industry could have jumped on a while back. Uh, yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, one could say that the CECC should have been able to uh, build that industry up uh, just like they did with the masks back in 2020. Right. Uh, however, um, you know, as, as things are a little bit volatile and things are rapidly changing, uh, I guess, you know, in this case, uh, uh, I think I think Taiwan can handle this in the next coming months. Uh, I actually feel that if we really wanted to, I think Taiwan could have tackled Omicron as because people said the same thing about Delta. But that said, uh, do we really want to go through uh, another like restaurant and business lockdown? Uh, again, probably not. And uh, again, because we're, we're all mostly vaccinated. And yeah, I, I think I think the CEC will work with the industry to get that sorted out. Uh, while the CEC isn't perfect by any means, I think their response so far has been pretty good, which is why I think the public in general has uh, a deep trust in the CEC, uh, relatively speaking. And so, I, you know, I, I 
I'll give them time to sort it out. Uh, and by, by the way, there is discussion about um, you know finding some ways that maybe the government or maybe employers could uh, you know work out and find a way to subsidize these kids because uh, yeah, like like as Michael said, you know, um, not everyone might have a yacht or something where they can quarantine, <laughs> and and not everyone you know can afford 300 NT. It's just cut, cuts into the line. So uh, we do have to look out for all of our workers in Taiwan. Too. And Sean, what about the public's ability to use these test kits properly? Because of course you do have to take a swab and stick it rather a long way up your nose, which many people, of course, might balk at. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, not everyone has experience sticking things inside themselves. So uh, <laughs> so, so, some might be a little less comfortable with that. Um, in those instances, I do think that this is where the CEC could work with uh, more hospitals and facilities where someone else can swab something inside, deep inside you uh, to find if you have a, a high enough viral load, uh, if case you're not used to doing it yourself. Yeah, this is an issue that's actually affected uh, my, my, my family personally. My daughter, who had a bit of a cold, she was too afraid to go to a clinic because she knew that if she went there, she would have to have one of these tests. And she was so afraid of uh, that nasal swab that she opted to. You know, it, it's so, it, is a, it is a problem. And but there is a saliva option as well that maybe could be explored as well. So hopefully they're going to get some, some, something on that. Yes, there's, there's also, of course, uh, there are other types of swabs too uh, that we've heard of, like the notorious China one, which uses the other end. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but all of these, of course, are unpleasant. But, I mean, that's our reality for now. And also this week, the Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices on Wednesday, in fact, approved the use of Moderna's coronavirus vaccine for children aged between 6 and 11. The decision means that the Moderna vaccine is now the first to have gained approval for children under the age of 12 here in Taiwan. Now, health authorities are saying they will arrange for children to receive the vaccine in schools, while they also still have the option to be vaccinated at hospitals. And the rollout of the vaccine for children is expected to begin early next month. But of course, Sean, this caused a bit of a stink because certain people, the Moderna vaccine is known for some side effects and some certain people were arguing that maybe different vaccines should be used for six to 11-year-olds. Uh, yeah, of course, there's always going to be side effects. I mean, but these side effects are a lot less than uh, perhaps long COVID or, you know, um, and the potential problems for that is is a lot, I guess, sig- less significant versus actually getting uh, uh, the virus itself. So, uh, so far, from what I've read, at least, uh, none of these side effects are long-term. Uh, they tend to be temporary or they tend to be like discomfort, things like that. And we're talking about children here, so it's natural that children already have a Sort of negative placebo effect after getting a, a shot, uh, and it is because of these that I do feel that um, you know. Uh, on the, on the, this is because of this that I feel that you know it's okay. Why? Because Moderna has only recently been approved all across the world for children. Anyway, uh, the UK was just last week. Uh, for other countries, it was just uh, uh, again la- last month or this month. So, um, in terms of the other, uh, uh, which we call available vaccines as well, there's that as well, which is they all have been approved recently. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised when uh, Taiwan finds other alternative vaccines to open up for children that people will complain about the same thing as usual. I think in Taiwan, we do have a culture of vetching about all sorts of things. And this is just the natural state of affairs. Yeah. Um, so I have a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old. The 13-year-old has already been vaccinated uh, with a Johnson uh, one at her junior high school. 
and the eight-year-old is telling me that she would like to get the vaccine. But, you know, I have to be honest and say that I personally have uh, some vaccine hesitancy fears for uh, a kid. And um, I think we're going to experience a lot of this in Taiwan. And I don't think we should necessarily, you know, call uh, this some sort of uh, conspiracy theorists or people who are uh, loony or whatever. It's just simple fear based on uh, not having all that much data. Now, there's only been a couple of countries in the world, mostly in Europe, that have very high rates of vaccination for children between uh, 6 and 11. And as you pointed out, you know, the Moderna thing is a little bit new here. So, you know, I probably will sign up for the vaccine for her and uh, let her uh, get it. And... Um, we, we just need the government to, to continue pushing the message, uh, the stats. We need, you know, as, as much information out there as possible. There's currently plenty of false info still circulating around online in various other places, uh, claims that I don't even want to repeat on the air because they're not true. Uh, but when you see them for the first time and then it links to something that looks relatively logical, you're like, whoa, and it just adds to it. So they, they definitely need to get ahead of that. Uh, the mayor of my city, Chen Shi Mai, he was one of the earliest ones, as I recall, who was calling for the uh, adoption of uh, vaccination for younger children. So uh, he did begin his career as a doctor, if I'm not mistaken, and we'll have to see if perhaps he uh, leads his city in becoming a, uh, an early uh, pioneer in, in uh, higher rates for kids. And of course, Sean, of course, they're also rolling out fourth shots for the over 65s now. Uh, yeah, I do think this should should happen because, um, you know, it's been quite a while for some of these seniors when they last got their booster. And number two, because of uh, the less of an immune reaction, uh, so to speak, I'm probably using the wrong term. But anyway, um, older, older, older seniors definitely need it, especially since we're opening up. They are our most vulnerable group and they actually are our least vaccinated group. So if uh, seniors old, age 65 or older mingle with other seniors, that causes a major problem. And, you know, if, if, if these seniors were mingling, let's say, with, you know, um, you know, 20-year-olds who happen to be one of the highest uh, vaccinated groups, then we, there would be less of a worry. But because they're, they're lagging behind everyone else, then, you know, you know, when they're among their peers, that just increases risk. So I'm okay with the fourth uh, dose. I actually think it's great. And I do think that the CEC and everyone else, especially county governments and city officials, should encourage seniors to do so. And I know they have. They've added uh, incentives, uh, vouchers, things like that. And um, uh, I think that's only good. So... And moving away from the coronavirus now, lawmakers clashed both physically and verbally on Thursday over a bill that seeks to retrospectively acquit former President Chen Shui-bian of corruption charges for misusing a state affairs fund when he was in office. The bill has, needless to say, been proposed by the DPP. Now lawmakers pushed and shoved each other as they rushed to take the podium as the bill was about to be read and that resulted in two female lawmakers. Well, they were ended up on the floor and they continued wrestling with each other, much to the merriment of most people people that watched it on the news. Needless to say, KMT lawmakers ended up doing other things, such as throwing fake banknotes and SOGO department store gift vouchers in the air. Obviously, 
SOGO gift vouchers are part. The SOGO department store, rather, is tied into the Chen Shui-bian corruption case. Now, the KMT also called for the motion to be adjourned and have another review, but that failed, and the committee chairman then called a roll call vote that pushed the amendment to Article 99-1 of the Accounting Act out of committee, and it now moved to the main chamber. Now, if the amendment is passed, it could absolve Chen of both civil and criminal liability for the alleged misuse of the fund. Now... The KMT is arguing that this is a bit off, but the DPP says, no, hold on there, Hoss. You basically introduced Article 99-1 in 2011, following the Taipei District Court's 2007 ruling that former President Ma ying was not guilty of taking half a monthly special allowance allocated to him when he was mayor of Taipei. There we go. So, Sean, we've got... The KMT actually introduced this article and the DPP wants to expand on the article to cover Chen, arguing that the KMT only introduced it in the first place to cover Ma. Well, yeah, uh, it, it does. It, it is special that uh, Article 99-1 of the Accounting Act says that... Uh, <laughs> All actions uh, before December 31st, 2006 are exempt from punishment. And I really feel that that is just dirty. I mean, at the time, there was a lot of controversy because when they did that, um, a lot of people were like, okay, it sounds like you're just covering yourself from what has been uh, sort of like a legal slush fund. Um, And indeed, that is the case. I do feel that there should be uh, legal fairness. So everyone should be uh, uh, under the same kind of law but the reality is if if that exemption was removed a lot more politicians would be in trouble and I also think probably they should be. But at the same time, uh, I do know that that slush fund has been used for a long time. Uh, even even during the, two, the early 2000s, uh, Taiwan was still, I would say, transitioning. And it still is to this very day, where a lot of old ways of doing things are still being transferred. Uh, and so uh, I won't say that Chen Shui-bian is is not guilty of other things. But in this aspect, I can see why they're doing that. And Michael, of course, they might be doing this because it's an election year. Yes, and uh, you may recall that it wasn't very long ago that uh, Chen himself came out with, I believe it was a 21-point list of why he's innocent of, of all, all the, the crimes against him, and it was a, a very forceful uh, uh, kind of op-ed thing. And he pointed out uh, the thing that Sean just mentioned as well with the, the, the difference in the laws. And so the election year is a thing. Um, as far as the... the, the kerfuffle in the legislature, uh, they should get all those videos together and produce it as a comedy or something, because it's just uh, really ridiculous. And I would like to see some sort of like childish punishment done every time they do this. You know, they have to go stand in the corner or something. But uh, anyway, the thing that uh, hits me at the end of all of this is that we do need to, in any case, however this resolves, we need to resolve the case of Chen Shui-bian because he lives um, quite literally two or three kilometers away from me, and he will get up in the morning and walk around the art museum, and he's, he's, he's here, and he's making comments, and he's technically out on medical parole. And we, just, we all know somewhere inside of us that this is not accurate, let me just put it that way, that there's something not quite right with the way that that whole thing settled in. So it would be good that we could 
take care of this issue. Now, some people have suggested that Tsai Ing-wen, in her uh, final days as president, perhaps issues a pardon, and that's one way to go. Another way to go would be uh, this one. But as Sean noted, those are not the only issues related to uh, criminal charges against him. But yes, we've been throwing this can down the road for a long time now, and something needs to be done with uh, the former president, so that we can, uh, you know, have, follow the rule of law and uh, make it f- f- fair for everyone. Oh yeah, indeed. And throwing the can down the road is a long-standing Taiwanese tradition with yeah. all sorts of matters, uh, as we will discuss in today's show. Uh, you know, so that that that's that's always been a thing we we do because no politician wants to deal with it because it's like a hairy mess unless it's to attack the other party. At that point, you know, it's always tried it out at opportune times. Uh, this could have been talked about you know, much earlier, later, whatever. But no, we have to wait around when it's uh, uh, election season. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, Like I said, Chen is not, this is not the only issue uh, dogging uh, Chen, but there's the reality that Taiwan needs to face up to the fact that uh, we have had a longstanding history of a legal slush fund where, you know, uh, use use of it has been questionable. Um, There's a lot of structures in Taiwan that we still have to renovate and renew and start anew. And I don't know if our politicians have the stomach for that because many of them are from the heyday of Taiwan's uh, democracy. Uh, we still have a lot of politicians that have been around since the, the 90s and uh, they like their old practices. And uh, uh, other things I would like to see d- uh, uh, wiped out, for instance, is the longstanding practices of politicians visiting weddings and uh, funerals instead of doing their jobs. Uh, these are things that I feel uh, tarnish Taiwan's reputation and look. Uh, that said, I would put money into that f- proposed fighting arena in the legislative yuan if mm. there were one. <laughs> uh, it might be exciting. But pay-per-view. I mean, if you're going to do it, might as well have a proper pay per view sort of <laughs> system. But in all, serious, like, in all seriousness, is, it, it's a, sh- a shameful thing to see on television. And the rest of the world sees it as well. And all the good deeds that you know we've done, Taiwan can help or something. I'm sure such. Parts of this gets erased in people's minds when they see this, and they, they look at what looks like you know a bunch of barbarian hordes whacking each other in the head. We we need to think about how we can stop uh, these types of, of brawls and what sort of penalty or what should happen if if someone breaks decorum like this. It's it's gone on too long. We do have to rehabilitate Taiwan's image in this matter uh, fast. I agree. And that's where we'll leave it here for this first half of Taiwan This Week This Week. But we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week here on ICRT. And Chinese television system, or Hua Shu, was left rather red-faced this week after the network inadvertently ran news tickers indicating that China was attacking Taiwan during a morning newscast. The tickers, which flashed across the bottom of the screen, said something along the lines of basically Chinese missiles have struck New Taipei, several ships anchored at the Taipei port have been hit, there is a danger of war breaking out, and Taiwan's president has declared a state of emergency. The network quickly 
quickly issued an apology, blaming the mistake on technical mistakes and errors that caused the display to pop up in the first place. CTS went on to explain that the messages were used as displays in a video on disaster prevention recorded earlier this week and mistakenly appeared on the screen. Now, according to the television network, a total of eight people, including news producers and editors, have received reprimands for running the erroneous news tickers, while late last night, CTS Acting General Manager Chen Ya Ling and Taiwan Broadcasting System Chairwoman Chen Yu Shou both tendered their resignations to take responsibility for the incident. Now, in a statement, the television network said that as part of the public Taiwan Broadcasting System, such mistakes will not be tolerated, and it's now cooperating with the National Communications Commission's investigation into the incident. So, of course, Sean, mistakes do happen. Hey, we all make mistakes. Television stations make mistakes. England's Queen Elizabeth dies has been a mistake story over the years. But, of course, this is taking a mistake story to a whole different level, if you ask me. Oh, yeah, indeed. Uh, (laughs) It kind of reminds me of, like, several years ago when uh, there was this broadcast in the States and they said that uh, Hawaii... Uh, was was suffering or was about to get a nuclear attack upon it, and apparently some people uh, started calling their loved ones or you know crushes and things, and lots of awkward conversations uh, happened. Uh, so do I? Do, is this something that happens? Yes, it does. Now uh, something to the degree where where you know you're, you're talking about ICBMs about to hit your island, and in this case Hawaii. Yes, that could happen too. Now uh, do I think that absolves them? No. Do I think that uh, part of this is sort of like theater where somebody has to resign. That's very common in Taiwan. Uh, I'm not sure if recognitions is always the solution for everything, first of all. You know, people learn from their mistakes. You don't always have to fire them. Uh, is this necessarily a fireball offense? Well, okay. So I started thinking about the panic issue. Uh, you know, it's, is it like a world, war of the world situation where people start panicking, thinking that the radio broadcast is talking about alien invasion and therefore, uh, you, know, you know, run for your lives? Not really. I think it's notable that nobody panicked because they immediately, uh, it seemed that, you know, in social media, there were kind of laughed at or people changed channels and realized right. yeah, this isn't a thing uh, in this age. Uh, that said, drills are very common. Uh, uh, you know, news stations and other things, they do do drills just like, you know, mentioned before Queen Elizabeth or or they, they preempt stories about people's passing or, you know, most notably sports uh, where newspapers accidentally publish the wrong team winning the championships or something like that. That happens all the time nowadays because, uh, you know, in the news cycle nowadays, you've got to move quickly. And I think that's probably the real thing to blame here, which is, you know, uh, they're probably overworked and, you know, whoever was in charge of it uh, just simply forgot or, or skipped procedure by accident. Now, and and it does happen. Uh, it's very unfortunate, but I'm glad that nobody panicked, uh, you know, and uh, so... Yeah, that's that, right? <laughs> yeah, I agree with Sean. It's uh, interesting that uh, m- most people that I talk to about it, they they thought that it was probably like some prankster who always thought it was a, a bad idea of a very, very late April Fool's Day joke or something. Nobody that I talked to, uh, you know, was calling their loved ones or any of this sort of stuff. So, uh, but on the other hand, you know, um, if there was any... if if there was ever a, a, a cause for getting demoted or getting fired, um, yeah, this one probably falls under it. And uh, some heads are going to have to roll for this as you, know, you can't really get away with uh, telling the nation that we're at war uh, without uh, consequences. So unfortunate, happy nobody panicked. And yeah, a few people are going to need to take the fall for this one. 
And members of the Taiwan Railway Labour Union are planning to take strike action on May the 1st in protest against the government's proposal to corporatise the rail company. The union is saying that 90% of its train driver members will be taking a rest day on the Labour Day holiday. And union officials say they want the government to withdraw a draft TRA corporatisation bill which has been referred to the Legislative UN for review and they want it to be resubmitted after an agreement has been reached by the union's members and the government regarding the corporatisation plan. Now, the draft bill was approved by the Cabinet in early March and is part of the government's efforts to reform the debt-ridden railway administration following the two deadly train accidents in 2018 and again in 2021. Now, Transport Minister Wang Guotai is insisting that the corporatisation bill will not be withdrawn and the government will not be bullied by the union. And he says that talks with rail workers' unions will continue in the hopes of reaching agreement in what will head off the pending strike. However, the union is obviously jumping ahead of that and digging its heels in on the matter as it's already said that its members could take similar strike action on other national holidays this year such as the Dragon Boat Festival in June, the Mid-Autumn Festival in September and on Double Ten Day in October. So Michael, train drivers are going on strike. Yeah, I support the actions of a union anytime they feel that uh, they are uh, in, in a place where they, they need to take uh, industrial action. I wish there was some way that this didn't affect the public in the massive way that it could. There's uh, stories uh, that I've read, perhaps apocryphal, about uh, drivers in some European countries who went on strike and continued to drive their buses but just didn't accept uh, money for the rides so that the only people that were harmed were the company rather other than the public, you know, I wish there was some way that this could happen uh, in, in, in our world, but I don't see how that would be possible. The unions are, are not uh, actually saying that they're opposed to the idea of corporatization, but it just comes down to uh, they haven't given guarantees on employee salaries, promotions, and pensions, right? So again, this is just a matter of a money issue, and um, it's something that when we break down the, the, the finances, we will probably find uh, that... The, the, the drivers, the workers, uh, everyone who's working with the TRA is not being paid uh, a, a, a reasonable amount. Taiwan's salaries are ridiculously low. Um, then you'll hear from the other side that say that these sort of jobs, their pensions are, are too high. So it's a sticky situation, but um, the idea of this draft bill, I'm... I'm I think perhaps the government will have to buckle on this one at the end. I don't know if Sean agrees. Uh, I actually think the government should. Uh, the reason is because the TRA in and of itself, uh, privatization or not, is uh, dramatically uh, under budget, is my opinion. I do think they need a lot more money, and I don't think they need to make money because the TRA and other transportation systems are a vital artery for Taiwan's economy. We cannot tell workers that, hi, you know, the TRA doesn't, you know, doesn't have enough money or it has outstanding debts, therefore we have to cut service or we have to cut the pay of the workers that make the system run. Uh, subway systems, transportation systems, train systems pay for themselves in an economy without which it cannot function. So therefore, um, yes, I do agree with the idea that, you know, TRA debts should be handled by the government. It should be covered by taxpayers. Of course, there should be an oversight committee. Of course, this is highly complicated. But that said, um, you know, we shouldn't, I mean, Taiwan is not the only nation dealing with this kind of issue, of course. You know, right. New York City famously has the MTA, or infamously. However, um, you know, 
I do agree that you know it, it cannot be a corporation that necessarily needs profit, because everything, so many things, are dependent on the TRA. So yeah, I do think the government should buckle on this one. Um, of course, there's going to be a lot of back and forth uh, for the months and weeks to come, uh, and I do agree that uh, there's going to be a lot of creative protest methods and means. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things that Taiwan must go through as we try to evolve into you know a first. First-rate nation in every aspect. <laughs> the the debt is significant, you know. Uh, just so people know, it's uh, yes. over fourteen billion U.S. dollars. So um, you yes. can have some sympathy for the government's position, yes. but uh, like healthcare and like uh, the military and other things, yeah, I'm with Sean on uh, basic transportation needs to continue somehow, some way, and uh, it can't be uh, predicated on uh, uh, salaries or other things like this. No. No, fourteen point forty-five billion USD. That's a lot of money. I get yeah. it, but we need that in order to function. And moving on from transportation now to the legislative UN. In fact, back to the legislative UN. This time, this involves Legislative Speaker Yoshi Kun, who this week began visiting nineteen sites that have been proposed as a possible new location for the legislative UN should it be moved from its current site on Zhongshan South Road in Taipei. Now, the visits come after Yo oversaw the formation of a committee to review a possible move amid concerns that the building that currently houses the seat of government here could be irreparable due to its age. Now, proposed sites. For the new, more modern legislative building are located in Taipei, New Taipei, Taichung, Zhanghua and Yilan. And the legislative speaker has been thanking the local governments for their input and says he plans to assess each location that has been proposed. So, Sean, there we go. He's going to pop around the island visiting sites for the new legislative UN. Oh, well, didn't we talk about... What was that thing again? Oh, yeah, Taiwan liked to kick it. Taiwan enjoying kicking the can down the road. This has been an <laughs> issue that's been around since the 30... For 30 years, sorry, three decades. Um, you know, just like all these other things that we like to discuss forever here in Taiwan, this is one of those issues, right? Uh, and, of course, there's been a lot of locations that have been proposed. Uh, uh, do I think it should happen? Well, I have the unique experience of occupying the legislative yen for several weeks uh, during the Sunflower Movement, and I totally understand why we were talking about earlier about how they fight, because um, the legislative yen that we currently have uh, was built uh, part of a junior high school during the, during the uh, Japanese administration or era. So it's not really designed for normal humans like you and me. Uh, it's designed for uh, young girls uh, who, who went to the school. What was it, like a Taipei Second Girls School or something like yes. that? Yeah. And, and so I, I had this experience where I was on the second tier of the debating chamber. And I noticed that my legs would just drive into the wall, and and, and no matter which row you're sitting in, I, you know I'm not that tall. I'm only uh, five foot ten. So when I went when I went in there, it was horribly uncomfortable. It reminded me of uh, medieval uh, torture chambers where they would sort of put you in this box and you couldn't stretch out. You know, after several weeks in there, I too wanted to fight, and I understand why everyone is anxious. It's just not a comfortable chamber, and even downstairs on the main floor or the chairs, they're just not built right. Uh, whoever designed it, uh, no offense, uh, did not really allocate or consider human uh, uh, proportions of modern day, you know, twenty twenty two. So uh, at the end of the day, uh, yes, we desperately need one. I visited the Japanese diet before. Their buildings are far fancier, newer, and actually usable. Uh, you know, I've, I've advocated all over the United States and D.C. especially, and even though their buildings are, you know, hundreds of years, like over 100 years old, but they're still 
you know, they have been updated. Uh, I just feel there isn't enough space in the debating chamber for the LY, and it needs to be changed. Wherever it is, is going to be better than what they have now. Uh, you know, and if you're there too long, of course, you're going to start tossing food and fighting someone because it is not comfortable. It's not well designed. Of course, Michael Yoshi Kun won't be visiting Kaohsiung because Kaohsiung has not named a site for the new legislative UN building. Yeah, um, that's my uh, biggest beef about all of this. I would very much like to see the entire government move out of the Celestial Kingdom and move next to a pig farm in Yunlin, for example, so that they could understand what Taiwan actually looks like. Um, Taipei is not Taiwan. I say this frequently, and I hope people understand what I mean by that. It's just, it's just different. You cross a bridge, and you're in a whole different world. There's order. There's people following laws. There's streets without potholes. There's a very different Taiwan, and the fact that these government officials don't see it very often is something that irritates me. So, yes, I am a little miffed that there was no... There, there was one idea of Nanto, right? But that possibly would be back to where the provincial government once was, and that's a pretty uh, out-of-the-way, nice destination. So, uh, yeah, I would be all in favor of moving it to somewhere very, very local. There are, of course, many, many people who would like to see it moved into the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, and the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall and Liberty Square has definitely the space for our proposed uh, fighting arena where legislators can actually brawl, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, where the current uh, debating chamber just is not really, you know, suitable for that. I do think that... Um, I do agree. Like, one of the things I would have liked to see is, like, if it had to be in Taipei, like Taipei City itself, not New Taipei, why not someplace like Wanhua, you know? Uh, then again, of, uh, one of the biggest problems with Taipei is space. You know, uh, the proposed locations like uh, the Taipei Military Police Building or, uh, you know, the vehicle tow yard in Wanhua District. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure. I, what I meant, when I meant Wanhua, I meant, like, they need to be closer to the people. And the vehicle tow yard does have some distance uh, from that. Uh, these or, or Hua San 1914 Creative Park that was proposed in the past, I don't think that's a good location now because it's a tourism spot. But yeah, outside of Taipei, I think is a good idea. There's long been talks about, you know, Taoyuan, for example, being sort of the center or Lai Qingde, who is like, we should have, you know, the, the political, uh, move more of the politics down south. I do feel that, yeah, indeed, the, the legislators do live in their own planet within Taipei, which in itself is like this other universe. Uh, so I fully agree with Michael here. Uh, this, is long, this is long overdue. Uh, the buildings are decrepit. If you, if you look outside and you look at uh, governmental buildings outside around the world, imagine uh, the exterior of the legislative yen in its appearance now, you know, on our, our currency or, or as the, the facing image of Taiwan's governance. It does not look good at all. There's safety issues as well. Um, it's, a, it's a fire hazard, allegedly, and several other uh, possibilities that, that could cause uh, injury as well. So uh, moving it is definitely something that needs to be done. I am interested, though, in what is going to happen to that spot of land and who has special interests involved in perhaps constructing a very large uh, office tower on that plot of land. So I would keep my eye on that. Or a rather expensive apartment building. Exactly. Any anyway, before we go this week, lawmakers on Tuesday voted without objections to reduce the prison term for growing marijuana for personal use, from a minimum sentence of five years imprisonment to one year and a maximum of seven years. 
Congress. Now, the amendment was made after being proposed by the Cabinet, which had recommended that penalties match the gravity of the crime in growing marijuana. Now, that all took place after, basically, pro... Um, smoking marijuana chaps and women um, came out on the streets of Taipei to call for marijuana to be decriminalised and allowed for medical use here in Taiwan. Marijuana is in fact listed as a Category 2 drug at the moment, alongside amphetamine, coca leaves, fentanyl, methamphetamine and opium poppies. So, Sean, obviously these people, they 420, they have a 420 here, which didn't happen on 420 and happened at the weekend, but these people want to decriminalise marijuana for medical use. I mean, do you see this happening in the near future or the future at all or never at all um taiwan still has largely dare levels d-a-r-e like a a u.s dare levels of sort of phobia against marijuana uh i used to joke around with friends that oh yeah they would ask about marijuana use in the states because as you know in the united states they've uh, largely decriminalized marijuana and i would joke that oh many of my friends died from weedles and they would actually look at me seriously as if i was talking about a real thing and i and i would be like come on this is a joke um you know the amount of people actually dying from marijuana is basically zero there are other instances you know related causes if such a thing ever happens but it's not going to be from smoking marijuana uh, i do think in taiwan we over uh, there's there's definitely a huge stigma and fear so i don't know how many politicians would actually uh, go out there and quote-unquote tarnish their image there are other battles they can pick so this is not one that they need to do uh zoe lee has been one of the prominent uh speakers on this issue she's a human rights lawyer and she also has a great podcast uh talking about uh the legal decriminalization and perhaps legalization of marijuana yeah marijuana can bring a lot of money in i thought that might have changed attitudes in taiwan especially since we saw how much money colorado and other states in the uh, other states in the u.s have made by you know uh, taxing uh, uh, ca- uh, cannabis and other related products. I mean, it's not just uh, uh, smoking blunts, quote unquote. Now, my I myself personally uh, do not use any drugs. I don't even drink coffee, uh, so I'm kind of an outlier. But I don't really see the harm in marijuana itself. That said, uh, I do see the harm it is in. Um, I do see the harm in, you know, spending uh, resources on this, especially when, as stated earlier, amphetamine is the real problem in Taiwan. The abuses of that is more of a bigger issue. Uh, you know, when people, when Chi Chin Chang in Taiwan are smoking marijuana, they generally, their biggest danger is going to be, you know, the nearest 7-Eleven for munchies. Uh, it's not going to be uh, a danger to people on the streets and roads. To quote the uh, wonderful Bill Murray, I find it quite ironic that the most dangerous thing about weed is getting caught with it. But uh, in more seriousness, <clears throat> there was a case in Pingdong last week where a man was sentenced. I don't have all the details with me here, but he essentially tortured and his, his child to death, and he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. And they want to put people who are growing a couple of pot plants in their home for themselves in jail. Now they've reduced it to a year. We, we need some uh, sensibility when it comes to these sort of things. There's been a couple of uh, cases that have just uh, shocked not only Taiwan but the world. People will remember back in 2016 when an American man in Zhanghua slashed his throat and committed suicide in a courtroom after being given a four-year sentence. 
There was also a, a murder in 2018 where um, Canadian and American alleged uh, weed dealers, uh, one was slain, and it's just ridiculous things going on because of this. And the reason for that is because when you look at uh, recent prices, especially after COVID, uh, the reports are something like in the order of uh, 2,000 NT per gram of uh, this product, which is uh, just asking for trouble from criminal elements. And the police have pointed out many times that the people who are buying this, aside from the uh, frequently maligned, you know, foreigners, it's you know, generally that's the, the first go-to bad guy, but it's actually what are called the four die, or the children of the Nouveau-Rich, these people who are uh, back from perhaps uh, studying in the States or Canada, and uh, they have the money to pay into this. So um, it's it's two different uh, systems that are, are, are just not fair. The waste of police resources that Sean mentioned as well is also just insane. When you look at some of these projects that they've done, there was one in Hualien not long ago where you know police watched a certain place for hours and months and then finally swooped down and busted 100 grams of marijuana. Is this worth it? Is any of this worth it? Um, we also have a problem with education in general. Children are taught the word duping, which in Chinese just means poison things. There's no differentiation in Taiwan with drugs, as in like, you know, aspirin being a drug and uh, amphetamines being a drug. Speaking of amphetamines, yes, that is the one that is the biggest problem in Taiwan. And I have spoken to a, I won't name names, but a very high-placed psychiatrist running a department at a very large hospital. And he has told me that he would much rather recommend uh, or uh, prescribe a marijuana treatment to some people uh, than giving them antidepressants and other things. And he also uh, noted that there possibly could be a decrease and the people using amphetamines if they were able to maybe chill a little bit by using much less harmful weeds. So we're talking about harm reduction here. Uh, the suicide of that American man, the murder of other people, the criminal gangs getting richer, uh, the lives that are being impacted by even spending a year in jail, all of this, this harm is too high for the hurt that is alleged to be caused by marijuana. Harm reduction needs to be done, and my final agreement with Sean would be on the income that it could bring. We've legalized uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, imagine what we could do if we also had uh, weed tourism. Oh my goodness, Taiwan would be a, a mecca. <laughs> it could be quite, uh, quite the um, green kingdom. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. Uh, it's great to be back. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.